Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 9th, 2022, and the news continues to be dominated by disputes, controversies about technology. Our old friend Elon Musk remains in the headlines. Apparently, he's still involved in maybe buying Twitter. Maybe he doesn't want to. No one can quite figure that one out. Meanwhile, there's a more and more controversy about big tech and politics. Uh, one piece this morning suggests that Google is supposedly misdirecting, whatever that word means, one in 10 searches for abortion to pregnancy crisis centers. And there's more and more noise, news in Washington, D.C. about the Biden administration um, controlling big tech. Lena Khan, the new head of the FTC, um, is in the headlines in the New York Times. And apparently she has nine initiatives to take on big tech, according to Recode. So the community is divided. On the one hand, there are people like uh, Vivek Wadwa, who was on the show earlier this week who believe that big tech needs to be controlled, needs to be regulated. Uh, his latest book is The Driver in the Driverless Car. And on the other hand, uh, there are people who believe that the tech clash has gone too far. Uh, near it, Weiss Black was on the show last week. Uh, she has a new book out, The Tech Clash and Tech Crisis Communication, suggesting that uh, we've gone over the top in terms of uh, stymieing, harnessing technology and innovation. Uh, one person who I think is about as balanced as you can get in terms of whether or not we should control big tech is my old friend Gary Shapiro. He wears many hats and today he's going to be wearing two. He's on the one hand, he's the CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, CTO, the organization behind CES held every year in Las Vegas. He's also an author in his own right. He's been on the show several times. Uh, many of you will be familiar with his book, Ninja Future. Gary is joining us from Detroit, where he lives. Gary, um, have we gone too far in terms of this tech clash or not far enough? Andrew, you know, it's been a while since we've spoken about this. And I know we've been around the world and discussed. You've interviewed me. We've debated. And I have to say, you were one of the early ones to raise some of the concerns about technology and companies. Um, I'm not sure it's the same companies as today, but perhaps it is since we go back so far on this. Uh, other concerns about technology? I think it's a legitimate area of discussion because um, every tech, I, I, the association I had is a nonprofit association of 1500 technology companies, including almost every big company you would mention. Um, so uh, we have views on this that are pretty strong. Uh, Usually when people are talking about companies, they're talking about just a handful of companies, but you know, that there's in my constituency, there's literally thousands of other companies that are smaller. They're, they're innovating, they're hiring. There's people with great ideas, putting their hard earned cash and their relatives cash to trying to get their idea out there and, and solve serious problems in the world. So I, I, I do see both sides. I see the fact that you know, tech is solving some of the biggest problems the world faces with healthcare, with food and clean water, with communication, with transportation. I mean, there's so many great things that are going on. At the same time, there are concerns um, 
that even in the tech industry, that the tech industry should understand and know the rules of the road because it um, people want to innovate. They want to create things. People want to invest. They want to buy things. But right now we're kind of in the United States a little bit behind while we're ahead on innovation. I think we're behind in some other parts of the world in terms of focusing on the policy questions in a meaningful way that produces uh, clear guardrails for technology that allows innovation to flourish and consumers to be protected. Gary, um, both your admirers and detractors describe you as a Washington, D.C. insider. You know your way around the halls of power there. You've been doing it on behalf of the consumer uh, electronics or technology industry now for many years. Do you see a shift in Washington, D.C. in terms of people like Lena Khan, or is this something that will go away when we get around to the next election and people will focus on bigger, perhaps more uh, immediate issues, uh, issues that will win or lose votes? Oh, I think Lena Khan is uh, a shocking, um, very young, very inexperienced person who hasn't worked at a job in the business world, who is, um, she, her, the way she got into office, you know, the theory is, is the Elizabeth Warren uh, kind of deal with Biden when she supported him for president, and she's and her wing of the party are determining a lot of the extremely far left radical appointees. So she's not only very young, but no one even in the Senate who voted for her thought she would be the chair. And President Biden, I don't know if he knows he did this, but he did something which was unprecedented in the course of American um, presidential histories. He took a commissioner candidate and made them a chairman within minutes of her being con confirmed by the Senate. Sadly, that action alone has had such reverberations, even with Democrats uh, and Republicans, that the, um, the nominee, for example, for the Federal Communications Commission, and this may sound like inside the Beltway, but she's a wonderful person, um, a Democrat, but very bright, um, who is, uh, should have been uh, she, confirmed she's by been on, She's been on our show a couple of times as Gigi well. Gigi Son, I mean, I'm, we supported her, I supported her. Uh, she's been held up because their fear is he'll do the same thing with the FCC, is make her the chairman. And, and, and generally, you know, I think the way it works in the Senate for confirmations, the other party, you know, they, they, they negotiate, they give in. But when it comes time to the chair, I think the person has to have a little bit more bipartisan support. And I think the, the FTC chair is so radical and so not focused on consumer welfare and, and instead wants to protect old industries that, there's a lot of uh, concern, and you know, I, I, I think it's now that there's that fifth Democratic or fifth commissioner, three Democrats, um, there's an extreme amount of concern in the business community, to put it mildly, that she's just going to kill competition, innovation, um, because she has, she thinks that big companies are bad companies. That's what she says. And she speaks inconsistently. She had some amazing quotes today that were just... Um, She's not alone, she though, Gary. I mean, to be... are, are challenged by her, and yet they are successful. I, I, I'm, um, I'm just flabbergasted. I, I have started my career working uh, with FTC commissioners, Democrats, and I, um, I never seen anything like this. My entire life of business, the most important thing is what's best for consumers. It's called the Consumer Welfare Standard. And she announced she's getting rid of it. And instead, we'll be focusing on what's best for competitors. And if we did that as a nation, we would be, we'd still have protecting those horse and buggy operators 
rather than allowing cars to come here. The idea of protecting competitors to me is absurd. You know, if you look at any list of big companies from 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 years ago, they, most of those companies don't exist anymore or they're, or they're a shadow of what they were because our system of, of the U.S. of free entrepreneurship and innovation and the First Amendment allows new companies to come in and disrupt old ones. And the thought of protecting existing competitors, I just, it gives me a knot in the pit of my stomach and makes me fear for the future of our economy. Gary, she's not alone, though, to be fair to Lena Khan. There are academics now who um, concur with what she's saying. We had one on the show recently, Morris Stuckey, a law professor who believes that big tech barons are smashing innovation. He has a new book out he co-authored called Breaking Away, How to Regain Control Over Our Privacy and Autonomy. There are more and more of these kinds of books. Do you think people are just piling into big tech because they're angry? Is there a case to be made in terms of big tech undermining innovation because these big companies, these multi-trillion dollar companies um, squash real innovation, startup innovation? I don't think they squash innovation. I think they encourage real innovation. I mean, one of the proposals coming out of this group of thinkers is that no big companies be allowed to acquire small companies. And the, the absolute craziness of that proposal is that it would, it would squash funding for these small companies. Because, you know, you start a small company, you have to get your funding from somewhere. You can only tap your family and friends so much. And what they're doing is people who invest seriously are betting that you have a good idea and they want a return on their investment. And the way that you get a return on your investment is you, you could create a company that could grow and become enormously profitable. Uh, certainly you could do that potentially, or you could go public and get other investors and cash out. And the third way is to have a big company buy you, which is, is terrific because it adds to the competitiveness of the US. There are antitrust laws which um, restrict acquisitions and mergers to make sure they're not anti-competitive. And that's been around as long as I have been. And that's the whole antitrust review process and everything else, which also, by the way, the FTC is eliminating with shocks to me. Is it, you used to be able to know based on your relevant market whether your acquisition was anti-competitive and would pass antitrust laws. And some other things just totally erased, eliminated, uh, was the guidelines that, that companies and their lawyers relied upon. Instead, there's this ambiguous standard now, which basically allows anyone with an axe to grind or anyone trying to make a name for themselves. Look, the fact is, is that the FTC staff is enormously unhappy. They're leaving in droves. The experts, the economists, the attorneys, the industry experts are, are, are just saying this is absurd. We, we have entered a land where the, you know, the inmates have taken over the institution of government where we had experts that survived and, and worked with all sorts of Republicans and Democrats, and they were relied upon. Now she has proposed and is pushing through and is changing the rules so that you don't even have to rely on the staff. You just don't rely on public comment. You don't rely on anything. It's, it's, it's the queen, uh, Lena, who decides what everything is. She doesn't even need to hear from the minority. She doesn't even need to hear from her other two commissioners. And I've never seen a a power grab by someone less experienced in the ways of business with more radical ideas, which will fundamentally accept, affect the U.S. economy. And it, it's, I am fearful. I don't know how else to say it because I have lived with Republicans and Democrats in different views, but it's fair to say that most people with PhDs in, in, in economics 
Uh, I have an economics degree, and as do a lot. This is such a radical departure from um, pro-innovation, pro-competitive economics that and the idea of protecting competitors rather than protecting consumers is just, you don't find that in many textbooks that I've ever seen or read, and you don't hear it in economic conventions. It's, it's right up there with the, the inflation that is just going to be temporary. And I spoke out against that, and I'll spoke out, speak out against this. This is just wrong, and it's bad for the U.S. I don't know how else to say it. Gary, is the, the tech industry and you, are you caught between a, a rock and a hard place in terms of the Republicans and Democrats? Donald Trump wasn't well, much I mean, the friendlier to big tech, um, was he? He, he blamed everything on Google and Facebook and Twitter. Well, there's no question that the Republicans, some Republicans, is conservative, uh, the Trump wing of the party, especially like um, Ted Cruz, they feel stifled by some of the platforms out there. And certainly it's understandable why in some ways they have it. Uh, and they also see, you know, what happened with the Biden laptop story, how it was killed by the, the not only the, let's be honest, it wasn't just the platforms, it was by the general media as well. It was like before the election, it was an important story and it was, it was totally stifled. I mean, that's just factual stuff. And they, some of it is paranoia. I mean, I, I've certainly tried to look up some things. I don't, I write occasionally for the American Spectator and they're tough to find on there. And, you know, but there's a lot of research which shows it's like a, almost an equal thing if you have different measurements that the people follow Democrats more on some of the social media and they get more attention and more views. And I don't know. So you could argue with that one either way, but there's no question that other than Elon Musk, that a lot of the leaders of those large handful of tech companies are, are definitely uh, one political direction. So that's what the Republicans feel. The Democrats, I think um, they have a different feeling. And that is, is that they're, they are concerned that there's too much power in these companies um, and that they are especially in the context of COVID, that they were allowing different views to be posted about COVID and about vaccines and about things. And I've even had um, things I've written about COVID taken down, which I, I was pretty horrified by because a lot of things I was saying turned out to be true about COVID. So, so I don't know how you have, have a legitimate scientific who, who took your stuff without down? A, um, the ability to have diverse opinions. Like the, the truth is, is that, you know, a handful of people in government should not have the monopoly. Who took your, uh, I'm curious, Gary, who took, which platforms took your stuff down? Um, next door, I was talking about, uh, 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 my wife had written about COVID early on about various things, all of which turned out to be true about masking, the importance of wet masking, the importance of uh, out, opening windows, how you could test for COVID. Some of the treatments were out there, the way it spreads. I mean, she called it right since January of 2020 when she told our volunteer leadership that this is the biggest thing in our lifetimes and it's going to come from China and it's going to affect the stock market. It's going to cause social unrest. I don't want this to be about my wife, who I have great respect for, but she's a doctor. She's very accomplished. She's one of the top in the country in her field. And she, and, and she knows what she's talking about. And some of these things, even about hydrochloroquine, for example, which is uh, used elsewhere in the world and other treatments that have been banned in the U.S., you, can't, you couldn't have a different viewpoint. And to see one of the liberal Kennedy family actually write this book about what the rest of the world is doing and how things have been squelched in the U.S. is a little disturbing to me. I don't, you know, you could say what you want about the leadership under Trump and under uh, Biden um, on COVID, but there, there was a lot of mistakes made and a lot of things we should learn from. 
and there's there's not that opportunity to have the type of give and take discussion. Now, our organization has released a document about um, being ready for the next pandemic, about differential uh, impacts on 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 race and, and things we could do. We've done a lot of things we could do in terms of getting information out about uh, vaccines and COVID. We required vaccines uh, to go to CES in January. You know, we've took we've taken some controversial things, but but you know, and I feel pretty protected by the First Amendment. Um, but I don't like being taken down, frankly. And it wasn't by one of the big companies; it was by next door, um, which I found pretty distressing. Gary, is there a crisis of liberalism in this country? We had Francis Fukuyama, probably America's leading philosopher, uh, political philosopher, on the show last month, suggesting that there's a crisis both on the left and the right. This rise of intolerance, inability for to accept opinions that you don't like. Do you see that as a crisis? Well, I, I haven't followed him since he wrote about the end of history, but uh, I do think that the what we've done is we've um, amplified the voices of the extremes and left out the voice of the middle, which is most of America. Um, now more people identify as independents politically than either as uh, Republicans or Democrats. And we're starting to see the backlash of the of the political system, which rewards those that are on the extremes because of gerrymandering, because of primary system. And, you know, this is a threat to democracy, in my viewpoint. And we, we just saw it this week when we saw the elections in California getting rid of the, you know, changing the traditional, the far left Democratic leadership. I mean, there's no question that San Francisco, for example, is a Democratic city, but they threw out their... Uh, you know, the, the attorney there because of the views. But but I think there's a lack, but I think the American public is is tired. I think they want to hear, they, they'd like to see another choice. I don't think they want to see Biden running against Trump again. I don't think that serves our country well. And I think that it's time we start looking at other options or a third party or a, or a people like, that are more towards the middle of a Republican and Democrat willing to stand up. I, I'm happy to see certain things occurring. I mean, there's, we're a big supporter of the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress, which are Democrats and Republicans committed to working together to solve problems. And almost all the bipartisan legislation that's come out of Congress in the last few years has come from them, whether it was the infrastructure legislation uh, or some of the procedural changes, which required the House to vote on something if, if members supported it, they couldn't get stuck in committee, or a whole bunch of other things. And I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by the fact that there are existing members of Congress, and it's risky when you're in either party to stand up and say, we don't care about our parties. We care about what's best for our nation. And that's what we should be focusing on. I could care less about either party. Um, I'm not happy with either party's leadership, frankly, because I think they, they're they going toward, they're playing to the extremes rather than to solving problems for the country. And it's more important that they win political points than they solve problems. I mean, we see that in so many different areas. And it's, it's, um, it's, I find it very sad because I think we owe a bigger debt to the next generation rather than just creating our, creating our own huge debt. I think we're, we're not, and, and it makes me concerned about democracy. We're just not doing the right thing anymore. And right. I think well, that, Pete, Pete Wayne, uh, another conservative, was on the show talking about how post, and rather than blaming everything on Trump, post-Trump America remains very sick. What about the role of innovation and tech, Gary, in reinvigorating, saving American democracy. Jamie Suskind was on the show recently as a new book out. Well, his old book's called Future Politics. He's got a new book out, The Digital Republic, which I'm going to talk to him about in 
in June, um, uh, in July. You wrote a book in 2011 with a foreword by Mark Cuban called The Comeback, How Innovation Will Restore the American Dream. Maybe you need to write a book about how innovation can restore American democracy. Well, you know, it's interesting. That book is, is in some ways more current now than it was then, because the, the thesis of that book was that China is advancing quickly and you better pay attention. And here's some of the things we need to do as a nation. We need to welcome the best and brightest immigrants. We need to uh, get down our federal debt, which now seems that was the good old days, um, because that's going to be affecting our, our, you know, we're going to be paying interest. As interest rates go up, we're going to see how much that's going to cost us and detract from all legitimate federal government programs, which is why the leaders of our military have even expressed concern about the debt, because they know that you have to pay that interest. And if you don't, um, you know, it, it ruins the economy, but it also, if you're paying that much interest, as we will soon, we'll be paying a trillion dollars a year soon. You have nothing left for discretionary spending or even for military. Everything's on social security and, you know, entitlements. But, but what do I think about innovation? I think innovation is our, is the American strategy. It's our great hope that we have left. We have the most innovative country in the world for a variety of reasons. And it's culturally, we're the most diverse country in the world. Our diversity is our strength. I really believe that. And we, you know, we have, we disagree with each other and usually politely, especially in business and our business, you know, we see all these great American tech companies and not just the five there, there's literally hundreds of them. And we leave the world in so many ways. And the Chinese, you know, they, they copy, they steal, they rip off our, our technology and our software and our programs. And, and they, frankly, often they improve on it, but they're doing it without paying what they should or, or giving homage. They have a, they, it's their culture. It's a different view of the world than we have. And, and it's gotten even more important since I wrote the book because they have a President Xi, their new leader or their leader for life, uh, has, has totally, t uh, instead of adopting Western ways and looking at human rights and the rights of individuals, it's focused more on society and what they've done with the Uyghurs and how they've um, basically tamped down any disagreement and taken away human rights. And, you know, and so this has become a battle between, in a sense, the U.S. and the Western world uh, versus, frankly, China and totalitarian governments where they don't care about the individual and the individual doesn't matter. You don't have the freedom to marry who you want. You don't have freedom of religion. You don't have freedom to communicate of, of criticizing your government or of uh, even talking to each other. The press is, all the press are employees of the government in, in China. And, and going back to what kind of world are our kids going to inherit? Is it one dominated by China and nephew? And that's why my view of the world is Innovation matters, number one. And number two, we have to get together with our Western allies in Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand, and Canada, and hopefully the democracies, strengthen democracies in Latin America and start saying we have a lot in common, let's work together. And I think, although I've been critical of the Europeans because they don't have a lot of innovation because of some of their policies, I think we have to work more closely with them, frankly. And, and as we see now with Ukraine and what we see with going on with Russia, this is all tied into who's going to win the war on innovation. And innovation, we're in a great position because we have the schools, the universities, we have the minds, we have the culture. We certainly have an economic system, at least we did, which encouraged investment in innovation and rewarded it. And we don't protect existing uh, competitors because in, in, in other countries, the existing status quo competitors go to the government and they get the government to block the new, the new entrance. So when an Uber Lyft comes in, the taxi cab drivers and the 
you know, Airbnb blocks the could have been blocked by the hotels. We don't have that as much here. We have a little bit, of it, but we have the First Amendment, which gives us the right to fight back. So what do I think? I think innovation is the answer. I think we're going to solve the biggest problems in the world. And I'm, that's what keeps me going. Is in, and we can't let our own government and our political parties, you know, respond for their own interests rather than the national interests. You know, we have these companies that anyone else in the world, any other country would love to have. And we're, what are we trying to do? We're trying to, you know, basically shut them down. And we're seeing the results in Wall Street now. We're seeing this implosion in, in tech valuations. And I would put part of that as our government's bashing tech all the time. And rather than saying celebrating and saying, yeah, let's work together and create guardrails. Let's do the right thing. Because I haven't met a tech executive yet who doesn't want to know what the law is and wants to follow it. Um, they're just going to new areas and, and, you know, maybe they're too enthusiastic occasionally about, um, about what to do with their data. But I think everyone's willing to work together. Look, we got the, all too, the uh, that, 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 uh, Gary, that's a little bit of a euphemism, too enthusiastic with their data. What about startup entrepreneurs? Should they be, be a bit more responsible? I had Joshua Browder. I'm not sure if you know him. Very, very smart young man. He's the founder of Do Not Pay. Stanford uh, dropout, one of the, the the classic young geniuses in Silicon Valley. He's idealizing people avoiding paying parking tickets. I had three Stanford professors, Rob Reich, Meron Sahami, Jeremy Weinstein, very distinguished professors on. They have a new book out, System Era, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. They suggest that people, and they, they, they call out Josh Browder, even if they respect him. They say that Young kids like Browder need more civic responsibility. I take your point about government. I take your point about Lena Khan. But doesn't tech also need to reform itself? Well, when you say tech, who are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about young men. And I don't want to focus on Browder because he's very smart. And it's unfair to pile in on him. But there are many startups which I think prioritize uh, sort of the libertarian uh, a libertarianism which discourages civic responsibility. Do you buy any of that? Or do you think that the browders of the world should just do whatever they can do to benefit innovation? Uh, I, the way you describe it, I, I value civic responsibility personally. I mean, I, we live in communities and you have to be part of the community and, and work together. As and and so to jump in, Gary, you're a lawyer, so you'll understand that do not pay it's essentially an or, or, an AI platform for disintermediating lawyers and en enabling people not to pay their parking tickets. Well, I, I, I've heard of the, the website that tells you how to fight uh, parking tickets, and they'll do it for you in different ways. And that, to me, is, is an exercise of the free market system, which I, I, I can live with. Um, and I've seen a lot of things... Um, on reporting potholes, which are big, were in Detroit, not where you live in, in the West Coast. But um, these are things that are important to people of helping government, or even um, we have some active members that are platforms for contacting government with your views, rallying people to social causes. I have no problem with that. That helps democracy. But saying that you shouldn't follow the law, I that's where I draw the line. I mean, no. To be yeah. fair to Josh, he's not saying that. Uh, it, um, let me expand the question. What is your take on social capitalism? It got strongly supported and then there was some pushback on it at Davos uh, last month. I was at DLD uh, where everyone who was speaking seemed to be talking about social capitalism. Is this something that 
we should take seriously? Yeah, I think we have to take it seriously. And it's in the business interest to take it seriously. First of all, if you want great employees, a lot of younger people, or this is why they choose their job. They want to know that their company is doing the right thing and just not, you know, maybe getting them riches or returning money to investors. So I think the companies that, that are focused on, I would say a limited amount of relevant causes that are clear about them uh, might do better. I mean, but everyone now, even uh, Alan Murray, one of my heroes, who's uh, the top person at Fortune and used to be at the Wall Street Journal and he ran a foundation. He, in his new book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, uh, My Search for the Soul of Business, he has done more because he deals with the Fortune 500 to push that concept um, then, and you should interview him, I might add, and I'm sure. Yeah, I'd love to. to, uh, to you. You, you'll have to introduce me. I will. Uh, but he, he has, a, you know, he actually, you know, had CEOs come meet with the Pope and he was moved by that. And he talks about that. But I think we all have moral responsibilities. But the, you know, there is a hard stop and Disney came to it and Disney was put in a position which was no win. And when you're a, a company that's dealing with the, the massive general public, you better choose your issues. You know, I don't get involved in the abortion debate. I don't get involved in the gun control debate. I have personal views that are strong, but I do get involved in LGBTQ issues because, first of all, I think it's the right thing to do. And second of all, uh, my employees and in, in where I was in Virginia, and I've been raising these issues for 15 years with Virginia governors because we were viewed as a conservative state because I, you know, if you want to attract great employees to your, your state and my location is Virginia where we're based, uh, you have to have laws that make sense. And that's so to me, it was this was an easy one. It was something I discussed with my board. Um, but I try to stay in my swimming lane as 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 an organization representing 1500 companies. But the tech industry is definitely for the most part, not totally, uh, you know, a little uh, progressive on social issues. But I wouldn't say they're they're left wing on on business issues. Uh, we can't end Gary without a mention of CES. Um, you are Mr. CES, Consumer Electronics Show. Many of our viewers will know you from that. 2021, it went on. Um, it was not as big as uh, the normal, uh, well, 2022 the big, uh, in January, half the usual size. One critic suggested that uh, you were unhinged to put it on, but you did. Uh, what was your experience of CES 2022 in COVID times or late COVID times? And do you expect CES to be back 100% in 2023? Well, my experience was uh, searing before the show because we had, you know, we were we were like doing amazing until Thanksgiving and even until middle of December when all of a sudden there was a, you know, the Omicron virus was rapidly growing and it was- Didn't your wife you warn you, Gary? She knows everything. She's a doctor. Uh, we have, And we have doctors on our board as well. Yeah, we were very well advised by a whole bunch of people who basically said the same thing. They said, we, you were doing everything right. We look, we even had the CEO of Abbott as our first ever health tech keynoter. And they actually supplied testing kits for everyone there. Um, we had masking requirements and we had everyone be vaccinated. So we, we felt we were doing everything we possibly could do. Um, but we felt, you know, at some point in, in life, I think there was a strong feeling we had that we have to go on because the show was so important, especially to smaller companies. You know, the larger companies, what happened was one large company who wasn't even really connected was keynoting, issued a tweet saying, I'm pulling out because of the safety of my employees and, and customers. And, and then it became a kind of race among big companies that said, oh, I don't want to be viewed as unsafe. 
when the easy answer was to do exactly what we did as, as an organization. We told our employees, if you don't want to go, you don't have to go. We understand you don't have to explain why. And there's very, it's a personal decision whether you feel comfortable enough to travel now. And that's how you should staff your exhibits. And that's what I think most of the um, thoughtful companies did. And it ended up being an amazing event because the gratitude of especially the smaller companies from around the world who make or break their company and look forward to showcasing what they have. Uh, some of the Eastern European countries, they had delegations and they said, the, our country's waiting and watching what's going on uh, and others. And it was just, it was gratifying. We had 15,000 people come from the outside of the United States to see us. It was more people that attended anything from outside the U.S. in two years, including sporting events. It was just, it was really wonderful. Um, and it was, um, it was important that we go forward. And now, of course, everyone's going forward. I haven't heard of any cancellations. You know, we, we set the standard. Uh, we are going forward for 2023. Obviously, we have very healthy signups. Almost every major company is in one way or another. Uh, and we're feeling good. The, the issue is more um, some of the travel restrictions from abroad are still a hindrance. The relationship we have with China and their own lockdown has definitely caused issues with many of the Chinese companies. But, we, you know, we have the strong support from other Asian countries and obviously Europe. Um, I was with Emmanuel Macron in, in October. We talked about CES. It was very important to France, very important to the Netherlands. We were there as well. Um, Britain, it's yeah, it's you won deal. an award from Macron. Remember when Macron was on my show in Las Vegas? That was yes, I do. Yeah, which is this little red thing that I'm wearing. Why did you get one and not me? Uh, well, I've known Macron for many years when he was the minister of the economy, and uh, I he was very we had some very frank discussions and meetings with I hooked him up with a whole bunch of executives, and we talked about what France had to do and what he figured out was it by being a leader in, of a country, even as a minister at the time, he could attract world attention on how innovative the French are. They had 400 companies exhibiting at CES. And they, you know, they still, I mean, the word entrepreneur is a French word. I pointed out, so is the word bureaucrat. Um, but he yeah, actually- well, we, could, we could make jokes about French entrepreneurs. Finally, Gary, um, what is going to be the big story in 2023? Is it going to be the arrival of the metaverse? Is it going to be- clean tech? Is it going to be um, solutions to um, to privacy? A a any a any ideas on, on, well, we on the huge stories in, that's in January? It's only six issues, months no away. You the reality is we're going, to tell you that. I'm sorry, we're going to areas like food technology. Uh, health technology obviously is, is still growing and huge, especially with you know the pandemic and all these different new solutions. But I think we're, our focus will be in a broader way uh, what are the problems of the world and how can we solve them? Um, because the biggest problems of the world that are are solvable other than war, which I haven't figured that one out yet, but whether it's uh, hunger, water, air, um, community, politics, communication, mobility, freedom of the individual and there's individual rights were associated with the things i mean i personally believe everyone has a right to health care and to eat and to you know be healthy and have clean water and clean air and so things i think there'll be a, a discussion and a focus on that in a bigger way than we've had in the past like what we could do with innovation to really solve problems that real people have and i think that's important i mean entertainment is wonderful and i love the entertainment segment to see us we have c space we have so much with content creation but I think really, when it comes down to it, innovation is doing so many great things for society, for the disabled, for the elderly, for 
people around the world to elevate the standard of living in the world that I think will I think we have a an ability to to get that message out in a bigger way.